You're listening to a Cripple and Co. production. This episode of Disability After Dark has been brought to you by Clonawilly.com. Clonawilly and Clonopussy are do-it-yourself molding kits that allow anyone to make an exact replica of any penis or vulva into a sex toy at home. All materials are ethically sourced and 100% body safe. If you shop at clonawilly.com right now and use the promo code DARKPOD at checkout, you can get 20% off site-wide. Wow! That's a deal that cannot be cloned. I talked to one of the representatives the other day, and they are more than willing to answer any questions you have about how to make your own clone willy or clone pussy, how to use the kit. They're so, so willing to go on this journey of cloning a willy or cloning a pussy with you. And they're super nice and super responsive to any concerns. So if you want to pick up your own clone willy or clone a pussy kit right now, head over to clonawilly.com and use promo code DARKPOD. That's D-A-R-K-P-O-D at checkout right now. And remember... This is a deal that cannot be cloned. This episode of Disability After Dark has been brought to you by Come As You Are. Come As You Are is Canada's only worker-owned co-op sex shop. Trans-owned and operated, Come As You Are carefully reviews and curates their selection of sex toys, books, and DVDs. Now you can get 15% off your next purchase at comeasyouare.com using coupon code AFTERDARK. We call it slicking the bean, choking the chicken, giving yourself a hand, auditioning finger puppets. There's a million and one names for the old five-finger shuffle, and yet hundreds of millions of people are unable to sauce the taco due to disability, aging, or illness. That's where we come in, if you'll pardon the phrase. At Bumpin', we've created the world's first accessible sex toy, so people with limited mobility, hand issues, and disabilities can celebrate Palm Sunday just like everyone else. If you agree that everyone deserves sexual pleasure, help us spread the self-love and fund an orgasm for those in need. Give the gift of the big O at getbumpin.com. That's G-E-T-B-U-M-P-N dot com. Hey there, Disability After Dark listeners, Andrew here. Well, it's summertime here in Canada where I'm recording, and you know, in summertime, we're always told to go outside and explore our national parks. But, you know, for all disabled people, exploring our national parks is just not accessible. Well, I want to tell you about a really cool event that's looking to change that. My friends at the Engineering Health Lab at the Kite Research Institute University Health Network are hosting a virtual conference on national park accessibility in Canada. This free event will take place from August 23rd through August 25th, 2022. The goals of this completely free event are what does national park accessibility look like to me and why is park accessibility important? What are the major barriers that impact national park accessibility for people with disabilities? 
and what are innovative solutions to improve park accessibility for people with disabilities. You know, I think this is such a great initiative and something you don't want to miss out on because we really need to be considering accessibility everywhere, even throughout our national parks in Canada. So to register for this free event, please head to www.parksaccessibilityconference.ca today. Content warning. The language, content, and discussion found within this episode of Disability After Dark will be explicit. Listener discretion advised. This is a podcast that looks at disability stories. It's like sitting down with a really close friend to have a real conversation about disability, sexuality, and everything else about the disability experience that we don't talk about. The things about being disabled, we keep in the dark. Here is your deliciously disabled host, disability awareness consultant, Andrew Gerza. Hello, hello, friends. Welcome to the show, friends. And thank you so much for clicking on this brand new episode of Disability After Dark, the podcast shining a bright light on disability stories. I am your delectably disabled daddy host, Andrew Gerza. Let's get comfy, cozy, and crippled and get this show started, shall we? First things first, I just want to tell you that I am feeling super duper fucking disabled today. I'm sitting and I'm recording in a, in a diaper, living the diaper life, thanks IBS. Um, and I just wanted to share with you that I am having a whole bunch of feelings about disability today that don't feel super good. It's Pride Month and I feel like I'm not a part of that community right now. I feel very sexually frustrated right now and I guess I can, I guess this intro is turning into more of a journal than I thought, but I just wanted to share with you that if you're disabled and you're queer right now in this month, I know how hard this month can be for you, and I know how difficult it can be to feel sexy, to feel included, to feel wanted in the queer space right now. And even though it is halfway through Pride Month, I want you to know that I see you. I see your queerness, I see your disability. I see all of it, and I still think you're sexy as fuck. So I hope that anybody listening who didn't feel that way now knows that somebody out there feels for them. And I just want to say that all you disabled people are hot. And uh thank you so much for being who you are and being authentically, unashamedly disabled. And um just thanks for being here and for listening to my ramblings as I talk to people about disability. It means a lot to me, especially during this Pride Month. Knowing that I have a platform that I can bring some goodness into your day, I hope that I do that. Then thank you so much for being here, and I just want to let you know that I see you, I feel you, I understand. Ableism sucks, and you don't deserve it. Okay, so let's get on to what we want to do today then, shall we? Friends, today's episode is episode 299 of Disability After Dark. We are almost at 300 fucking official episodes. And I know I've done different series, and I know I do different things on the show sometimes. But officially, as of next Saturday, we will be at 300 fucking episodes. Holy wow, that's pretty cool. I never thought this show would go past 50, 
if I'm honest, we even get to 50 sometimes. So the fact that we're here means a whole fucking lot. And I, I can't thank you enough for supporting me, for wanting to be a guest, for listening to me, for rescheduling with me. If you have been a guest, you know that I'm the worst fucking scheduler in the world. Thank you for sticking it out with me for 300 episodes. And I can only hope that we have 300 more. Wow. Thank you so much. I'm so excited. But let's get 299 started right now. One of my most favorite things that happens to me in this job and in this work that I do is I get publishers who reach out to me and say, I have so-and-so who wrote a great book or who I have so-and-so who does great things who would love to come on your podcast. And this episode is one of those times where I got an email from a publisher about a book and then I met the person and I was like, this person is fucking awesome. And I was so glad that I did it. And I'm so glad that people reach out to me because our guest today has written a fucking cracking memoir, one that I'm so excited to share with you and talk to you about right now. Let me tell you all about today's guest. Today's guest is memoirist and writer Chloe Cooper Jones, who has written a book called Easy Beauty that explores her experience of having a congenital disability called sacral agenesis. And so we talk about her experience of disability, chronic pain, ableism, motherhood, um, life, so many different things we talk about in this hour. Because reading her book, reading her book just changed my, the way that I want to write about disability. Reading her book, made me want to sit down and write so much more about my disability experience. And then I got to talk to her, and I was fucking blown away by how poignant she is and how honest she is about detailing her experience of the disability experience and just being really honest with us throughout the next hour. So you'll hear a fantastic interview, and we talk a lot about the book, so you should go to... Her website, ChloeCooperJones.com. I'll put it in the show notes. Buy her book wherever fine books are sold. Um, go, get a hold of it. It is a, it is such an important disability text because it doesn't bludgeon you on the head and say, you're reading a disability text. It weaves a story around disability of somebody who is grappling with disability identity, grappling with motherhood, grappling with ableism, all these things intertwine. And it's such an important read. And it doesn't matter if you're not disabled. It doesn't matter if you are an able-bodied person. It gives you glimpses into the disability experience on such a visceral, personal level that I cannot recommend this book enough to you. And I am so honored to have the author, Chloe Cooper-Jones, on the show today. So, enough of my rambling. Let me introduce you to Chloe Cooper Jones, author of Easy Beauty. Oh, let's try again. Let me introduce you to Chloe Cooper Jones, author of Easy Beauty. Let me try that one more time. Let me introduce you to author Chloe Cooper Jones, author of Easy Beauty, right here on Disability After Dark. Chloe Cooper Jones, hi. Hi, how are you? Good, how are you? I'm good. 
I'm really glad. Thank you for having me. Sorry. (laughs) Thanks for having me. Well, I was going to say the same thing. Thank you so much for being here. I'm thrilled to be here. And I am very jealous that you're recording this from Los Angeles today. I wish that I could be in Los Angeles today. It is a particularly beautiful, sunny day in Los Angeles. And the hotel that I'm at has a rooftop pool, which I will be taking full advantage of a little later on in the afternoon. So not to brag, but it's pretty nice for right now. (laughs) Although I don't, I don't live here. So it's a, it's a fleeting um, joy. Yeah. Every time I've been to LA, I'm like, it's so nice here. And then I'm like, oh yeah, I don't want to live here, but it's nice (laughs) to just be there for a minute. Um, So you're here because you just wrote an amazing book called Easy Beauty, and I got to read a copy of it, an early advanced copy, and I fell in love with it. And I, and then you and I had to reschedule a bunch of times because life happened, <laughs> and then so here we are. Yeah, thank you for reading it and for rescheduling and being so amazing. And um, I'm just so glad we finally get a chance to talk. Yeah, me too. So I loved your book. I'm only halfway through, to be honest. I haven't read the whole thing, but. From the second I started reading it, I, and I felt bad because we had originally planned to record a couple days ago, and I was like, oh, I haven't read it yet. I have to like, I have to get on it. So I, I sat down for like a good two hours, and I read a nice big chunk, and I was like, this book is awesome. It's really, really good. And I was so mesmerized. And then when I had to stop reading, I was like, no, I want to read more. Like, I want to read more. And it, it's such an important book, which we'll get to in a minute. But before we do all that and talk about your book, Easy Beauty, I want to ask you, and I ask every guest when they come on, what is your disability and how does your disability play a role in your life? Um, well, my disability is sacral agenesis. Um, I also have hip dysplasia and spina bifida um, and some assorted <laughs> things. That, that but The primary thing is sacral agenesis, which um, is a particularly rare um, congenital disorder, which just means I was born without my sacrum. Uh, my sacrum is a bone that connects just for people who don't know, maybe everyone knows what these things are, but, um, a set of nerves to the lower half of my body. So the lower half of my body is underdeveloped. I'm much shorter than the average woman, technically a dwarf. And I also have limited muscle growth or sort of control over the lower half of my body, specifically from the knees down. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's affected my life in any number of ways, certainly wrote a whole book about it. I think, um, (laughs) you know, (laughs) uh, I think one thing is like, you know, I, I'm a very visually disabled person. There's no instance other than maybe a zoom, um, where I can pass as anything other than disabled. And so a lot of the book and a lot of the ways that I think about disability, which is of course not not the story of all disability, but is in visual terms, the way that people stare, the way that people show the reactions um, through their gaze, the way that people sort of have a set of ideas of how a disabled, a visually disabled person should present themselves. Um, And so those are things I, I think I've spent the most time thinking about um, and reacting to in my life, but then also my disability comes with a pain disorder. So pain management and what that sort of means in terms of what I can do in the course of a day, Um, you know, pain management is for anybody who experiences it. It's a, it's just a constant texture, I think in your life, or I I think 
sometimes it's like a a note that's always playing somewhere in the background of your mind and so like i'm I have yeah. it, and I'm talking to you right now, and I'm having a great time, and I love talking to you. But I, but I will say, I'm sitting here talking to you in pain and doing it. But I'm, I'm doing, I'm having my day. But like, there's pain, and I, I'm sure that a lot of listeners who have disabilities are are listening, being like, "Yeah, this is great." But I'm listening, and I too am in pain. So I, I'm sure that we're not alone here. Yeah, I have a question about that. Like, one thing with pain management for me is like. I kind of constantly, and you'll see, you know, on the Zoom, like I constantly have to kind of shift or reorient my body to yeah. sort of accommodate certain things. And and it's so interesting how, to me, how people who don't experience that, like will read read my body language incorrectly, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like, and they'll do you think have that, that experience? Like, yeah, people will think you're upset. They'll think you're yeah. mad at them. They'll think... Yeah. You know, they'll think something is really, really wrong when you're just like, oh, no, I'm just having a pain moment. Like, thanks. Um, totally. And, yeah. And I totally agree with like the, that people don't understand how, how not, I don't want to say debilitating, but sometimes debilitating, but like how it, how you have to shift your body around just to be even a little bit more comfortable than you were before. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I try to explain it to people, and this is not necessarily a good metaphor analog, but I think it at least can be helpful. Um, is like I, I always try to remind people that they too, because they have human bodies, they're also constantly doing pain management, like hunger is pain management. And just as oh, wow. you have to think through like how you're gonna figure out how to get through your day and not be starving like I also have to think that way I just also have this other thing right so people don't think of hunger as pain management or that their lives are impossible because they have to figure out how to eat they just try to manage that as best they can and obviously there are so many circumstances which make hunger management so much harder or for some people very easy and we're all sort of on a spectrum of privilege to that kind of pain management. And I'm like, that's also kind of how I feel. And I I talk about that too, because I think people, when they hear that you have pain are like, oh my God, I, how do you do anything? And I'm like, how, how do you do anything? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, no, it's like, we figure it out. We're doing our, like we're doing pain like, and we're doing stuff just as you, you just said. You know, you were talking about payment, hunger as pain management a second ago. And the minute you said that it clicked for me into a moment in your book when you're with somebody and you open up your bag and you have a bunch of oranges there <laughs> and they were like, oh, are you doing a mom thing? And you were like, well, it's not really a mom thing, but like, yeah, <laughs> I have a bunch of oranges. And so it just made me think of like, that's probably part of the way that you you manage the pain of hunger of like always having something there. Yeah. I mean, there are things that some, you know, like amplify, I mean, the, the sort of interesting thing about that scene is, so I have all these oranges that are sort of like this mystery in a way, and I'm offering them to people and, and I keep finding more in my bag and, and more in my pockets. And I'm like, I kind of like, Oh God, I don't know why I have all these oranges. And then later um, there's a scene in which it's revealed that my son had been while he's hugging me, like listening to my stomach growl and rumble and was worried about me. And so filled my bag and my coat with oranges as his like a loving, like caretaking act yeah. for me. And I think that part of what that scene is doing is like, 
because I do struggle with pain and I struggle with being a person in my body, which is not a unique struggle, but is one that I'm, you know, have a unique sort of entry point to, I, I can spend, I can um, spend a lot of dissociated time lip pretending that I'm only a mind and not a body. And that is not in the book really struggles with like how that sometimes is a productive way of being and how sometimes that's a way of really absenting yourself from moments of responsibility that you have in the world. And so that threshold between um, where sort of being an abstracted mind with no body is, is a place of power for me versus a, pa- a place of a kind of a loss of agency in the world is like a big struggle in the book. And I think for people who sometimes are trying to pretend they don't have a body so, or, or just are like so centered in their cerebral sense, they'll go for a long time without eating or they'll go for a long time without taking care of themselves. And sometimes I'll make my pain so much worse this is such an illogical, stupid thing to do, but sometimes I'll make my pain worse because I don't want to spend the 30 minutes in the morning that I should spend stretching or doing, drinking enough water, eating properly, like setting myself up for a better day. I won't do it because I don't want to think about my body at all. And I don't even want to center myself for 30 minutes in my body that would ultimately make my life better because that yeah. desire to like dissociate from my body can be stronger than even my desire to alleviate pain. And so to have an outside person like my son seeing that and then feeling like his role is to sort of take care of his absent-minded mother is, is, you know, an interesting sort of tension in in the book and something that I try to work through as the book moves, moves forward. I mean, I think also in the book, like one of the things I love about the memoir is that you explore so many themes, you explore disability, motherhood, ableism, both internal and external familial (laughs) connections to disability. But what I love about all these, the ways that you talk about all this stuff and you weave it through and why I was so mesmerized from like, the second I started really reading was because like a lot of disability memoirs I feel and a lot of disability texts t- tend to bludgeon us with you're reading a disability memoir this is a disability memoir don't forget it's a disability memoir and like you don't do that it's very mm-hmm. artful the way you talk about it it's very some of the moments like the first couple pages of the book I knew you were disabled because I knew I was going to be talking to you, but had I not known that you don't really bring up disability. So there's a moment where you're talking about you're in, I think the opening was you're in Rome and you're talking about, about this museum, one of the museums and you're talking about the statues and you're going over all the art. And so, and then somewhere in there you drop in that you're you're disabled. And I went, Oh, that's so cool. Cause the reader gets kind of sucked into the history of Rome and where you are and what's happening and all the stuff. And then all of a sudden, bam, you like bring disability out, but not as like a big surprise, a big reveal, but it's just there. And I really like that. I thought that was really powerful. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, it's very intentional um, on a lot of levels, especially that particular scene. So 
the book opens where I'm in Rome and I'm traveling by myself. You don't really know why you don't know what I'm doing there. I'm looking at this Bernini sculpture and the Bernini sculpture has a lot of like sexual tension in it, even though it's also a representation of a violent abduction, but Bernini really thinks about a lot of tensions in the body and how to render that in marble. And, um, and it's a, it's an extremely sort of, um, powerful experience to be looking at it, but also looking at it with other people. And then there's this sort of moment where I'm looking at this handsome stranger and maybe feeling like a a hot vibe going on and, and imagining like, sure, I've come to Rome. Like, why not have a magical affair with a sexy guy and have a big adventure? And it's like, he's staring at me and I'm kind of staring at him. And we're kind of like following each other through museums and, or through the galleries and, um, And then it's, you know, revealed that he wants to, you know, he's a chiropractor that wants to save me and, (laughs) and give me like his, you know, and he's not, he's not attracted to me. He's a completely desexualized or pathologized my body. And, and I think it's kind of important that the reader not know that that's the possibility. Right. Um, And it's important because. I think that a really important idea with disability narratives in general, not not necessarily ones written by us, but written about us, is yeah. that the disabled body is constantly desexualized, made tragic, and often presented without much agency. And so I really wanted to read to lead my readers into an experience of how disorienting that is for a disabled person like myself to be shown over and over and over and over in the eyes of strangers that I'm not, I'm not even a sexual possibility or that I'm desexualized. And if I frame it up front, Oh, it's a disabled person. Then the reader might go, well, maybe he's not looking at her like that. Maybe he's looking at her like, you know, so I needed that turn to feel as disorienting to the reader as it does for me. And that meant withholding certain pieces of information about myself until it was, um relevant to share yeah and I, I like that it was that scene definitely was a gut punch to me because I expected like the reader that you were going to go off on this fantastical affair or at the very least have an have a like imaginary affair in your head oh, that you're going to write yeah. about and put down and then when the ableism hits you you're like I literally I literally read and went oh fuck was, <laughs> oh there it is I was so upset for you <laughs> I know that's what it feels like right that's what I was like oh fuck this again yeah oh god there it is (laughs) and that's actually that's a frame a refrain that exact refrain goes all the way through the book is me saying oh there it is there's that thing that I knew was going to happen which is someone's going to look at me this way someone's going to stare at me this way someone's going to feel disgusted by my presence, somebody's going to feel uncomfortable. Somebody's going to say a cruel thing, and and it's just kind of a unfortunate and inextricable part of being disabled that you just know it's it's coming. You know, you know it's there. You know that that experience is always around the corner. And what a horrible way to experience public life, right? It's sort of like. Yeah. Is part of you, even if you're very present in the moment with your friends and people that don't treat you like that, your family, like there's always this little part of me that's looking for when that's going to happen. And then when it happens, I'm like, there it is. There it is. I knew it. 
Uh, and so much of the book is me sort of trying to come to peace with that so it doesn't ruin the experience of being present with other people, which for most of my life, that looking for that there it is moment, it did sort of always ruin the experience of being in public for me. And I I, I felt that way too. Like I constantly feel like, oh, the shoe's going to drop. Oh, you're going to say something horrible. Oh, you're going to do something horrible that you don't realize you're doing that's horrible. Oh, I'm going to have to deal with that. And like, there's no, what I love about kind of the character of you in the book is that you really bring us into how a disabled person feels when those things are levied at them. And I, like, it was really important for me because I, I think us talking about internalized ableism in a book never happens, hardly ever. So when I was connecting with with Chloe, the character, I was like, oh, this is, she's she's putting the words in my mouth of like how I feel about so many things. And there were so many moments from the half of the book that I read that I was like, yep, felt that way. Yep, that's that too. Like one of the moments that I, and I, this was a question I was going to ask later, but I'll switch up. I want to ask you now. One of the questions that I, one of the moments in the book that was like really striking for me was, when you were having a conversation with your with friends and colleagues of yours, Colin and Jay, at a mm-hmm. bar in mm-hmm. Brooklyn, right? It was in Brooklyn? Yep. Yeah, and so you were at a bar in Brooklyn, and they were talking about... Well, actually, you know what? I want to have you recount the story. Can you tell us that story? Yeah, so <clears throat> I'm sitting in a bar in Brooklyn, and I'm sitting with these two men who are my friends, who are in the same, uh, or were in the same philosophy PhD program that I did. And we were talking about this case in bioethics, um, which has to do with any ethical questions about ethical implications of um, implanting uh, embryos that you know are deaf for deaf parents. So deaf parents who want to have deaf children um, and use IVF in order to have deaf children or need to use IVF, but for whatever reason, but choose to have um, deaf embryos implanted and not hearing embryos implanted. And this is like, this is a bioethics case that I teach every year. Um, And it's always sort of an unbelievably painful bioethics case to teach because you just see all your students um, ableism pop up and and this Judge, they abandon all the sort of logic and reason that that we try to teach in philosophy and and sort of react just with these gut level. Anyway, so this is not this part's not important. I could talk about bioethics for a very long time, but so these two men who I'm I'm talking about teaching it, you know, teaching this case, this famous case in my class, and one of the men just simply argues, and this is not a new argument at all. It's not the first time I'd heard this argument. He just argues that um, people with bodies like mine or like ours should not exist and that our lives are inherently less valuable and that, in fact, he believed that, you know, eugenics was a great idea, but just not very popular to say so and that people should be forced to do genetic testing when they become pregnant um, in order to locate you know, any possible disability and that those fetuses should be aborted. And if you have a disabled child, you should be fined. And there's just like so 
<laughs> so many horrible um, <laughs> concepts operating there. But, and I'm sure this is not unfamiliar to you, nothing new. I mean, this is something that to some degree we see over and over and over again reiterated in certainly in history and in the whole field of of any sort of biomedical questions and also in ethics and philosophy. I mean, there are eugenicist arguments everywhere. And I think also in art a lot of times, I mean, the narratives that I saw of disability, I think things are changing. And I want, I really want to get back to your question of like the lack of internalized ableism or ways in which narratives are approaching disability, maybe differently now or starting to move toward. But when I was growing up, I mean, the only thing that I ever saw about illness or disability was that um, we were tragic and we almost always died at the end of the book or or the end of the movie to help the like realer able-bodied person. Yeah, to help the better able-bodied person like yeah. move along. And I mean that if that's the narrative that you have, you know, if you read Little Women and all you get is the Beth narrative of being like a little desexualized angel who dies, spoiler alert for anybody who hasn't read Little Women, but <laughs> um she dies and she has no real life and all the realer sisters get to have sex and marriage and careers and all these, you know, they get to realize um, their lives. Yeah. The sick person just is sick and helps is a tool for that. And that's all I saw in any sort of books about disability um, or that had disabled characters. And if that's the narrative you get over and over and over and over again from every sort of discipline then yeah of course you're going to say things like oh, a disabled life is inherently inferior i mean that's the social messaging that's existed around disabled bodies for a really long for time centuries centuries yeah. like millennia probably if we look if we look far back enough probably millennia <laughs> um but like you know i think what was jarring for the reader and probably for you cuz you were there like it happened to you in a bar in a place where like in a place where you're supposed to socialize and come together and have friendly, you're, this interaction with these two students, colleagues, were supposed to be friendly and like you're hanging out, having a beer, not discussing how your life isn't valuable in front of you as if it was some philosophical question. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the thing. It's like, yeah, it is really jarring for me. And it's also a reminder. And this is a very important reminder for me, as I was saying, like a minute ago, like, I always want to retreat to like a mental space in which my body doesn't exist. And that's a protective measure. Um, Again, which has some benefits, but mostly is is an avoidance technique or a coping mechanism. And that's a moment that's a really powerful. And I think it's why it really becomes the catalyst of my book. It's an important reminder of like, nope, there's no spaces in which you're not a body. Doesn't ha- doesn't exist. So it's like, I just, this happened on this beautiful night in Brooklyn, which we don't get nice weather all the time. You know, being in Toronto, like yeah. the weather's not always great. So sometimes when you have like a perfect night and I was wearing my favorite dress and I was going to go out with my friends and I'm like, oh, I'm just going to have a drink and and just be a person having a nice social moment. And then it's like, nope, your body's always there. And people's reactions to your body are always there. And there's no world in which you can avoid this. And that to me 
is a painful but very important call to action, so to speak, because I want to delude myself into thinking all the time that I don't have a body. Um, And that's not a helpful delusion for anyone. It's not helpful for me. It's not helpful for the people around me, able-bodied or not. It's not important for, or it's not helpful for a community um, that I so lovingly belong to of disabled people. So it's like, it's a very bad delusion, but a very powerful one. And so I think it's important that that moment happens when I think I can let my guard down and not think about my body. And it's like, nope, still there. <laughs> but I think I, under, I understand why. And I understand, like, like we were talking about a minute ago, the fight or flight of yeah. constantly being on edge that someone's going to throw an ableism at you or say an ableism or do an ableism. And so like, like, you know, the, there's another point in the book where you're in Rome and you're walking from the museum to, I think the bus stop or you're walking somewhere and these yeah. bunch of guys see you and make fun of your size and make fun of your disability in front. Like they're speaking, I think in, in, I'm going to mess this up. What language do they speak in Rome again? Italian. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's right. So they're, yeah. they're speaking in Italian, weren't they? They, these men actually, yeah, they were both in, and they were speaking in Italian and in English. And they also just were like trying to communicate to me that, that, that they weren't meaning, quote unquote, to make fun of me. But what they wanted is they had a very tall friend with them. I'm very short. And they wanted this tall friend to like stand next to me on a wall and have us take a picture together, which of course is to, to like, humiliate me. Like, but yeah, they're like, yeah. oh, it's okay, it's okay. Like, we just want to take a picture with you. But of course, they're not asking. And, and this is something that I wonder if, how much you experience this. I, I certainly know for people my size, um, I'm constantly seeing people taking pictures of me. It's like on the subway or it happens actually less in New York than it does other places because New Yorkers don't really care. But um, but I'll be walking places and I'll just see people wanting to take, you know, it's like I'm just this oddity um, in their like, vision. What do they think? It's so that's so upsetting because I'm I'm privileged enough to say and I'm lucky enough to say that I haven't had a lot of people take photos of me personally, but I have had other friends in wheelchairs and wheelchair user friends of mine ha- have you know if they need help and their families helping them eat, people will, will want to take videos, or if you know if they need something and they ask for help, people will pat them on the head and just keep walking. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, mm-hmm. but okay, wow. So I fully understand the feeling of oddity. And I, uh, reading that scene where those guys wanted you to, like, wanted you to do that, I felt, I was upset for you. I was like, oh, well, this is, this is all, like, oh, God, why? And it just was so, but I like how you juxtaposed those ableist moments with the beauty of where you were. And, like, then you go into your internal dialogue with yourself. Like, I liked how all those pieces were intertwined together so you never really knew what you're getting when you read the next page and I like that it was really I think it really made the disability it weaved it into the reality I think when we read disability text like I said earlier we expect that okay this is going to be a chapter about care this is going to be a chapter about what Chloe needs to do in her day this is going to be like that's mm-hmm. what we expect and when you were able to take that stuff and weave it into real life I think it's exciting because we never see that. 
Thank you. Yeah, that's um, that's really meaningful to me that you would say that. I really am moved and I appreciate that because it was so close to the very explicit intentions that I had with the structure of the book. And the structure of the book is something I spent a lot, a lot of time thinking about for exactly the reasons that you're saying. Um, I really wanted my reader, whether they're disabled or not, to feel very centered in what the actual experience of my life is, which is not segmented into chapters about like care or bad people or childhood. It's like, no, it's, it's so all this is integrated. So when I go to Rome, I'm just like any other person in Rome. Like I'm hot, I'm tired. I want to look at art. Maybe I feel pressure to eat the right kind of pasta. Like, you know, I'm just a tourist, like taking it all in. I'm experiencing the beauty of it. I'm experiencing the disorientation of it because I'm in my body. I'm also in pain. So that's part of the layer that that is also happening at the same time. It's not separated out. It's not like, here's the pain moment. It's like, no, yeah. there's pain. And, and that pain is happening at the same time that I'm thinking about how good this pasta is, right? Like it's all colliding. But at the same time, I'm also thinking about my past or my memories or what I had just read or, or what this artwork makes me think of. And then I'm walking back to my hotel and I'm thinking about talking to my family and sleeping and air conditioning. And then this abrupt, you know, moment Reminder. with these in the alley. And that's just what my life is actually like. It doesn't, you know, there aren't these moments where I can pluck these things out of my life. And I think that's what all of our lives are like. So it's so important to like, it's so crucial to me when writing about disability. Okay. Let me just rephrase this because this is important. My individual life, like me specifically, Chloe Cooper Jones, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter at all. Um, Nobody cares about Chloe from Brooklyn. Like that's fine. So if I'm going to write a whole book that's from my perspective and part of that perspective is it deeply informed by disability, then I need to figure out a way to write about disability that actually is helpful to my community and does not further marginalize or other us. And I think, unfortunately, sometimes some of the writing about disability is so deeply about explaining how different our lives are from other people's or for able-bodied people's that it actually sort of effectively furthers to other us. And what I really wanted to accomplish in this book is to have entry points for literally any reader. They don't have to be a mother. They don't have, certainly don't have to be from Brooklyn. They don't have to want to travel. They don't have to be in a body like mine. They don't have to share any sort of biographical similarities to me, but they do have to think that it's valuable to think about what it means to be in a dynamic relationship between a self and a body and a world of strangers and a world of others and being seen. And that interplay of like interior self, exterior self, and and the social gaze of others, like that's something for, for, I hope, feels relevant for every single person. And then I'm like, yeah, and here's my version of it. And that that's the explicit goal. And so 
if that's the goal, then I can't write as though I'm a sort of a magical other person that requires all these other things that other people Don't. can come to my book and like learn about, like eat their yeah, vegetables, yeah. learn about the disabled experience. It's like, no, <laughs> you know, I didn't, I didn't realize that learning about cripples was, uh, was an eat your vegetable moment, but now no, totally. that's how I think people they're like, Oh shoot. Am I woke enough? Like, do I have, you know, is it disability month? I don't know when that is. Oh, I better buy a book about it and tweet about it. It's like, no, let's, let's not think about my body or my experience that way. Let's think about it as, as relevant, you know, because disability experience should feel relevant to any human with a body, which is all of us. So it's, it's, it's a tricky thing because I don't want to conflate experiences. I don't want to say we're all exactly the same, the same, but I also don't want to write anything or do anything that would in the mind of able-bodied reader, get them to say, wow, that person is living an experience that's so foreign to me. They're somehow slightly less human, which I think happens with disability a lot. I totally agree with you. And I think that that less human or more magical thing, when people read our stuff, they always say like, oh, wow, Mm -hmm. Andrew, that article you wrote was inspiring. And it's like, was it really? Or was I just trying to (laughs) tell you a story though? Yeah. Like, <laughs> that word inspiring what a horrible word <laughs> I know it's so I have such a controversial feeling about it because part of me loves it and part of me gets it when I I try to listen to what they're saying when they say that and what they're trying to say is your work was great thank you and I yeah. wish we could just stop at that but unfortunately because of ableism all the stuff comes through I wanted to ask you though in part of the book where you talk about I can't remember how you phrase it in the book, but the room where you go in your mind to kind of disassociate. Um, You talk a lot about in the book about that room and you talk a lot about feeling, feeling disconnected in your body and not being allowed to have certain experiences, feeling quote, a burden. So rather than talking about all those things, I kind of want to just generally ask you, how does internalized ableism play a role in your life? Yeah, I mean, it plays a huge role. The The dissociated place in my mind is called the neutral room. And it's a literal, like, sort of imagined room <clears throat> that I can go into that sort of helps me dissociate from both the physical pain of reality and the emotional and social pain of reality. And um, But, yeah, I mean, I, internalized ableism plays a massive role in my life. And I think that it feels, um, you know, I think that there's a tendency, at least for me, to feel some shame about that, right? Like, or pressure to feel shame, to be like, I should be more proud of my body and be this like fully integrated self. And, and a lot of the books that I was reading to think about my book when I was writing it were often written from the perspective of somebody who was so far ahead in terms of like, you know, they were writing from this like hindsight of being a great advocate and really understanding so much about the community and having all these things figured out. And, and I was like, that's amazing, but how do I get there? Right? Like if I'm struggling with my understanding of myself, if I'm struggling with 
my conception of what it means to be disabled and how other people see me, like how does someone recognize that struggle and then work their way out of it? So I felt really committed to writing a book that was only situated in that struggle. And by the very end of the book, you see me start to get a clue, right? You see me start to figure some of these things out and the book ends. So there's no moment in the book in which I'm saying, you know, I'm really, I really know a lot about disability history and I'm a great advocate and I'm a great community member. And here's how, no, there's none of that. It's all me just being like, this is a really complicated problem to, to embody and to work out. And I'm going to be really honest about the problems with that and how hard it is and how I have become because of internalized ableism, I become an active collaborator with the worst concepts about myself. It is not the world that is always keeping me on the margins. It's also me. I'm collaborating with that. And how do I stop doing that? How do I stop being that kind of collaborator? So I think this is just true. I think this is true for everyone. This is not a unique thing to the disabled experience, but I think all of us walk around because or move around in the world and experience through the eyes of strangers um, or the behaviors of strangers or the concepts of strangers, uh, the, the first thought that, that people have when they encounter you. Right. So that's just like, we can't help that. We, we, we see and we perceive and we have a quick first thought. Now the hope is that we have second thoughts and we have third thoughts and we have more complex thoughts. We get to know people, we think about people, but that's a lot of work. So it doesn't often happen. So the things that I experience when I go out in public is I see the eyes of strangers reconfirming to me what the first thought is about my body. And it often is pity that I'm weak, that I'm less able, that I'm inherently less valuable there. I see a lot of concern, especially when I was pregnant. My God, I mean, I see so much concern reflected back to me. I see assumptions about my limitations, which are always wild. The things that people assume I can and cannot do And if that is the thing that's reflected back to me over and over and over and over and over again, and I have a congenital disability. So my whole entire life, there's never a moment in which I was alive that I didn't experience this. There's no way. Yeah. The same exact experience of like, there's never a moment where, where even when we, when we were little kids and we didn't have words for it, we knew what ableism was. We just didn't know how to say this is ableism. Yeah. So if that's your experience from birth, you know, on every time you move in the world, there's no way not to internalize some of that. And I think the work of getting yourself sort of free from that begins with facing it, like looking right at like the most, and it's such a painful wound for me to look at the ways in which I've wasted so much time or I've collaborated with the worst concepts about me, or I've enabled people to think less of me because of that internalized ableism. Um, And that's not a fun thing to write or think about. So maybe that's why it's not in as many books as it should be in, but it feels like a very important thing for me. What was it like 
bringing this story to your publishers and to your agents and being like, okay, so I want to do this. Like, are they, are any of them that you work with disabled as well? Do they understand like the value of this, putting it on the page or what? I was extraordinarily lucky. Um, I have the best agent, I think, in the universe, uh, Claudia Ballard at WME. And she had read a piece of mine that was in the believer that was about disability. And she has a connection to disability through her child. And she just wrote this incredible email to me that was like, this is something I've always wanted to see in the world. And I haven't found it. And I want to make this book. And I think she just backed me um, so hard from day one. And I think there's a lot in that story that's really important, but I also, I I wonder if I'd had a different agent who didn't feel that same personal connection, connection yeah. if, if it would have happened so well for me. And I think that's when, you know, when we talk about having representation in all these different levels of the publishing industry or media or whatever, like why it becomes so important because for Claudia, because she had that personal connection and because she's an amazing agent, she could really support my vision of the book. And she pushed me to make it better, but she never pushed it to be more reductive or more inspiring or more geared toward educating able-bodied people, how to be better people. Like she was like, Nope, this is the vision for the book and it has to be your vision. And here's how we just make your vision stronger and better and more refined. So I, I was unbelievably lucky. And then my, she put me in the room with amazing editors. I met a lot of them, but the one that I ended up having the strongest connection to also has a daughter um, with a disability. And so, or has the, you know, she had, my editor has a very special connection to it as well. So there was an immediate shorthand that we had together um, that allowed, I think, my best work to come out, to come off the page. Yeah. And I don't think the book would be as honest uh, and as uncomfortable and vulnerable and open had I been with any other team. I think yeah. that's great. That's awesome. I'm really glad to know that, like, I think – yeah, to your point of what you said about having people in the room who understand in all levels in mm-hmm. media is important. And I think that I'm so glad they didn't push you to make it inspirational. They didn't push you to make it like this triumph over adversity bullshit stuff we see all the time. Like, I, I'm really glad that it was, the, the book is dark and twisty and like <laughs> kind of weird, but I like, yeah. it's so for me, cause I'm a dark and twisty person too. So when I, as soon as I got into it, like I read it the night before we were, we were originally supposed to record the first like hundred or so pages. And I started at like, I don't know, four o'clock and I looked up at the clock and it was like six thirty, and I was like, Oh my God, two and a half hours went by. Oh wow. Like it was so immersive because it was telling a story that I think disabled people know in their core, but a lot of us don't have language for it. So from one disabled person to another, like it was, it's such an important piece of work because it talks about stuff that we know, but we never speak about. Thank you. That, I mean, um, there's no, there's no validation that I want in the world more than 
the disabled community's validation. I want people to feel, I mean, it's, it's impossible to ever think that one experience can speak for anybody else's experience, but if I've made any sort of connection point to anyone else, like to you, I mean, I almost want to be like, stop reading the book. What if you hate the ending? (laughs) Like don't read anymore. (laughs) Like, like how do we protect this feeling where right now we're, we're connected and, and, I, I mean, it just means the world to me if I've said or done or written anything that feels like it builds a bridge between somebody like me and somebody like you. Um, yeah, and someone who's not like us at all. And someone who's not like us at all, because I I just didn't have, I didn't feel like I had that growing up. I didn't, I mean, my my mother who raised me didn't have a disability. I grew up in a small town where I didn't really know any other disabled people. I didn't find any books that felt like they were written for me. I didn't know anything about being a disabled mother, which is a whole minefield of people's renewed and very complex ableist ideas yeah. about a disabled body procreating, right? Like it's just the ugliest thing. How dare up. you have sex? How dare Ab- you? Absolutely. Dare you? People would be like, what happened to you? Like, how did this happen? And I was like, I fucked. That's how it happened. <laughs> but it's like, it blows people's minds. So I didn't have anything like that for me. Yeah. And I wanted to write. I mean, there was a really strong part of myself that was like writing as an act of compassion for my younger self to go back to that girl who was so alone, so isolated, so sad and angry and resentful. And to say like, you know, I love you. And this is, this, this is, is a, a love letter to you. Yeah. Like, yeah. And I agree with you. When I was growing up, my parents were not disabled. I grew mm-hmm. I also grew up in a small town. And I remember the only books that I had to read were about Rick Hansen, the guy who wheeled around the world, um, the Canadian <laughs> guy who wheeled around the world and the main yeah. emotion. And like my other examples were Christopher Reeve after his accident. And mm-hmm. like growing up, those are my only two like prominent examples of disability that I saw. And so in each of those examples, I was implicitly told I have to push myself and move past all my disability to be this heroic figure. And so, like, I also want to write a book. I am not even close to doing that yet, but I'm at a place where, where that's something that I want to do. And I think I I would write something similar to you in that, like, the struggle of, like, dealing with my own internalized ableism, dealing with my queerness and disability, dealing with all those things together and not really having a space. And it would be a love letter letter to like little Andrew being like, Hey, so when you were 10, you felt this, let's talk about it now. (laughs) Oh, I want to read that book. I mean, I'm nowhere near even an idea, but it's something that I've like tossed around in my head for years. I'm just scared to start doing it. (laughs) Oh, I hope you do it. How do I, how do I convince you? How do I support even you in doing this because that fear I hope it goes away really fast because I think that is a absolutely crucial work that I really want to be in the world I mean it's basically I'm basically writing my book through Instagram if, if you go on my Instagram feed like yeah. all my feelings are basically the, <laughs> the skeleton of what the book will be I just have to figure yeah. out where to put them well, you've got a draft yeah. then <laughs> yeah basically but I think you know the work when I read your book like I said it took you know, the, I was in your book for two and a half hours, just like totally transported. And I think as a disabled person to read those words 
And I think, you know, I, I think about the neutral room that you talk about, and I think about all, like how many times I too have actively disassociated from ableism that I was experiencing. Cause I was like, well, I don't go somewhere. I'm going to say something inappropriate. Or I'm going to be rude. or I'm going to be, I'm going to become the angry disabled person. And I need a place to go where I can't do that. And so I totally connected in that way, but I want to shift a little bit to mm-hmm. motherhood. Cause we've been chatting about it kind of throughout, but I, wanted to ask you more pointedly. So you explore motherhood as a disabled person. And we kind of joked about it just now, like you fucked, that's how you became a mom. Like, cool. (laughs) That's how it is. But like, as a disabled mom, what would you say to other disabled moms and moms who are non-disabled who encounter you? Wow. That's a really great question. I mean, I think that one of the many complexities about being a disabled mom is that you may or may not pass on um, certain things about your own disability to your child. And I did not. My son is not disabled as of yet um, or wasn't born with a congenital disability. And that felt in some ways like it felt really strange to me. Um, I felt like other people get to have kids that look like them and have experiences like them. And, and I didn't, and that's fine. Cause my son is, you know, he's perfect the way he is, but there was sort of this disconnect for me, I think initially. Um, and it was a really complex thing to sort of work my brain around. And I also realized that while I did not pass on any of my physical um, markers to my son, I was capable of passing on all my social resentment to my son. And that was pretty eye-opening. You know, when he was about four or five, I started to see him reflect back to me a distrust of strangers, a feeling of also looking for something that there it is thing that we've been talking about. You can pass that on to your kids. And I didn't want him. I didn't want him to experience the world that way. And something my husband says to me at the end of the book is, is um, I think it's really important to be critical and to stand outside of society and be able to look at it from a distance And he said, I want Wolfgang, my son's name is Wolfgang. He's like, I want Wolfgang to have that critical faculty, but not at the cost of camaraderie and like community. And he was, my husband was like, I think our son can be smart enough to figure out how to have both of those things if we don't get in his way. And I think my sort of just the deep, unsettled feeling in me um, because I was not at peace with my identity and I didn't know how to be present in a world of others that I could pass on to, to Wolfgang and I didn't want to. And unfortunately um, you can't fake anything with your kids. You can't just say things like, Hey, don't, don't worry about strangers. Like they might be nice. Like, or don't dehumanize people yeah. before you meet. You can't like, you actually have to live it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that, that was such just that was such a turning point for me. And then I think for you know non-disabled um, or able-bodied mothers, like 
I think, and I, I mean, maybe you've had this experience too. I think the two words that I've overheard the most in my life are don't stare, right? And it comes from well-intentioned parents who notice that their children who don't yet have the social mechanism of like, it's rude to stare or whatever. Shame. Yeah. Yeah. Like their kids are staring at me or their kids are going, what, what the fuck is that? Or their kids are going like, what's wrong with you? Like what happened, you know? And then the mother, the father, whomever is the parent or the guardian or whatever is like, don't, don't do that. Don't stare. Yeah. And part of me is like, yeah, don't stare at me, little brat, like half my face. Like I'm just in the bodega, like <laughs> leave me alone. Like that is a huge part of my honest reaction to children staring at me. But I think obviously that doesn't do me any favors, right? It just kind of further stigmatizes the disabled body. And so a thing that I'm really trying to to think more about, especially as a mother who relies on strangers to help you know, my son be a better part of our world. Like I, I kind of have to do that too. So the thing I really want to encourage more is like, you don't have to tell your kid not to stare. You should encourage them to ask like polite and thoughtful questions, or you should have your own polite and thoughtful conversation with them, but don't further like stigmatize my body or make it as though I'm like, this horrible thing that I can't look at. Yeah, exactly. So that's a big, that's a big thing for me. <clears throat> and and you and I have talked about this a little bit already. It's like, sometimes you just don't want to have to deal with all that. Sometimes you're just going to the grocery store. Yeah. You're just having your day. I mean, but, but sometimes that little four-year-old runs up to you and says, you know, what, what are you? And yeah. there's a part of my heart that is just open and be like, wow, I get to, I get to shape you. I get to, I'm yeah. your first experience with a wheelchair user. And I don't know if I've told the story on the show, but I'll tell it again because it's adorable and you're a mom and you'll you'll die. Yeah. So my my one of my friend's kids, his name is Alexander. So we went, he was like two at the time, and we were hanging out together. It's pre-pandemic, and we we're walking around my neighborhood, and he didn't know he knew I was in a wheelchair, he knew I was sitting down, but he didn't know what to call my chair. So he called it a zoom zoom. And so for like two hours, we're walking around the neighborhood and he was like, oh, Andrew's Zoom Zooming in his Zoom Zoom. And it was <laughs> uh, the most adorable. And we would gently correct him and say, it's a wheelchair. Look, it's a wheelchair. And so at the end of our two-hour walk, he we said, well, you know, what is Andrew in? And he went, a wheelchair. And I just, it like made my heart so happy that he he now knew what the word was. And it wasn't scary to him. It didn't scare him. He was excited by it and so I always look at that moment and think he's going to go back out in the world and see a a wheelchair user and know what they have now and not Mm -hmm. be afraid of it I mean that's such an important so I think just the phrase you use like I get to be the person who shapes this kid like that is so important and and such a beautiful and generous and empathetic way to to look at those experiences. And it's definitely for me, like it's taken having a child to get to that point because I desperately want my child to go into the world, to encounter people who are new to him and for them to see him with that generosity. Right. Yeah. Um, I want that so desperately for my child and I want him to feel like he gets to learn 
from a tremendous wealth of of people from all different sort of ways of living. And I mean, it's just like, it's, but it is, it is harder for me um, or it has been harder for me in the past. I think it's easier now to just stay always in that compassionate and empathetic space. So do you have any advice for people like how, like, did you always feel that way of like, oh, I get to be the person that shapes this kid or is it like something you sort of matured into or struggled with at all? I mean, it is something that I've struggled with. It is something that I've matured into. And I think kids are different than full-grown adults. Kids are totally new vessels of knowledge. Kids are completely innocent in my mind. And and they don't, even if they've been shaped by some ableism, even if they say ableist things, I think they're, they are much more malleable than say full-grown adults who have their, who are set in their ways, who know, who they are and blah, blah. So, but I think when a little kid without any malice runs up and says, what's wrong with you? Like, and Mm -hmm. instead of me saying, don't look at me, kid, go over there. (laughs) I can, I can say like, Hey, thank you so much for your question. And it's not always easy to do that, but like saying, Hey, thank you for your question. Nothing's wrong. I'm just, I just use a wheelchair. And so I think if an adult asks me like, Hey, what's wrong with you? my ire would immediately be like, why the fuck do you ask me that? But if a four-year-old asks me, I know there's no like preconception behind it. He just wants to learn. Yeah. Well, you're a good person. You're (laughs) better. I like you. (laughs) And yeah, I mean, that's where I'm at now, but it definitely definitely was something I, I struggled with. And uh, it's not, it's certainly not easy. And like, yeah. You know, when adults ask you on the street, what's wrong with you? When like a, when a 30-year-old role comes up to me and says, what's wrong with you? I try to take the same tone I would with a four-year-old. Not, not like belittling them, but just take a breath and try to do the same thing. They just need they just need a little a push in the right direction. And sure, I can scream at them and be like, fuck you. Nah, nah, nah. But like, what am I doing if I do that? Am I giving them knowledge or am I just being mad? And if I don't, like, I don't have to educate them. Of course not. But if I can, isn't that like, for me personally, that makes me happier. It makes me yeah. like, oh, I did something good today, even if it was just a little bit of education. Yeah. I mean, that's totally right. Um, and I think I think sometimes with when adults, I mean, I, I have a lot of experience with adults just putting their hands on me. I think I like live in a body that people want to like touch and as if I were a child, like, pat me on the head or carry, you know, pull things off of my shoulders. If I'm carrying bags upstairs or give me a lot of advice, the way you would a child. Like, I think the things I hear most are just like, slow down, take your time. Don't worry. Like, be careful. I'm like, my guy, I'm just just living my life. Like (laughs) this is every day for me. Like I'm not in a precarious situation, even if it looks like that to you. And I think that those reminders that, very often adults aren't actually further along in their knowledge or concepts really not. than kids. It's and, you know, adults of our generation thing. too, like their parents were growing up in the eighties when it was more appropriate to be like, don't stare at the disabled person, stare over here. So like, um, yeah. I think you're right. We're not that further along. I also think you should get a shirt that says like, that <laughs> says like, my guy, I'm just living my day. <laughs> 
I'm like, I get that it looks weird to you when I go up the stairs, but it doesn't feel weird to me. <laughs> like, I, and that's that sort of, you know, I mean, everybody deals with that to a certain extent, that, that disconnect between your interior self and your exterior self. I had a weird moment of this recently, just because it was so heightened, which was, so my book just came out in April and I've been really lucky with the timing that I've been able to go on tour. So I've been traveling basically solidly for since April 5th. So about two full months. And I've just constantly been on airplanes and I've been in all these bookstores and theaters and and I've gotten to meet all these people. And I had this moment where I was walking through, I think I was maybe in Portland, it all kind of blurs together. It might not have been, I don't want to name a city. I don't want to malign someplace. a city. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Someplace. I was someplace. I was in an airport and I'd done a couple of my tour events and I was feeling like, this moment, I had my headphones on and I think I was like listening to Perry Styles or something and feeling really like cool and sexy and powerful <laughs> and like, you know, internalizing you Perry's Come on. voice. Were you listening to Watermelon Sugar over and over again? Was that what I was can't happening? I remember. <laughs> it was something where I was like, yeah, me and Harry Styles, just like cool, sexy people living our lives, like living our dreams or whatever. And I was just feeling really good. It was one of those moments where I was sort of taking stock because I was just walking to my flight, like taking stock for a second of like what I had accomplished and that I was proud of myself. And I was feeling kind of at the height of, of my power, right? Like just going like, I'm doing this thing, I'm doing it. And as I was walking to, you know, the security line, I start seeing the security guard, like waving his hands at me to stop me. And I put my, you know, pull Harry away from my, my ears. And the security guard just goes, slow down, be careful, be careful. I don't want you to fall. I'm really worried about you. You know? And he was like, do we need to get a wheelchair? Like, are you okay? Like who's traveling? Are you traveling alone? Where's your parent little girl? Yeah. And I was, he was like, are you traveling alone? And I was like, Oh my God. And it was just such a, and that's obviously not the first time that that People on no, airplanes are always like, are you traveling alone? And I'm like, yeah. But it was such a heightened dissonance where I was yeah. at my best. And it's that reminder again that that the world still sees me as this sort of like weak and, and precarious mm, human. Vulnerable person, yeah. Yeah, deeply vulnerable, less able, confused person. So that's when I really needed my like – my dude, I'm just living my life t-shirt. Not like, even kidding. I want to <laughs> give me, you send me your address after this and I will, I'm going to go on like the Vista print and find a shirt and I'll, or I'll make one and I'll send it to you. I was like, I just had to look at him and go like, I'm fine. Like, leave me alone. Like, yeah, like I'm good. Watermelon sugar here. Yeah. Like I was trying to, trying to think about Harry Styles doing inappropriate things to my body. Would you leave me alone? Totally. <laughs> totally i was like don't ruin my vibe yeah Harry and I are just like at the airport kind of feeling ourselves we're like. hanging out yeah <laughs> uh, um one of the questions that i didn't write down that i want to ask you that and i maybe you'll say this later in the book when i read it but why do you call the book easy beauty um yeah it's a good question so the term comes from uh, a philosopher named Bernard Bosenkett, who makes this distinction in his um, sort of treatment of beauty or thinking about beauty between easy beauty and difficult beauty. And he doesn't assign a value to either one. He's just saying like, here are two different types. 
And easy beauty is just the type of beauty that arrives to us very quickly. So Bozenkett says like, when you look at a rose or a sunset, or you hear like a simple spatial rhythm and you just feel kind of an immediate, quick, instant sensation of that thing's beauty, or you can appreciate it right away. And I yeah. think that's an experience of beauty that that we typically really enjoy in our lives. You eat a great meal, you step outside and, you know, on a roof in Los Angeles, as I will in a minute, and you just go like, wow, this is beautiful. It's great. It feels great. Like everything is, is really a, a fast um recognition of beauty. And then he says difficult beauty, which is extremely important, um, but is often underappreciated, is the type of beauty that encompasses so much tension or complexity, or this third term, which he uses, which is width, that it's not immediately recognizable to the eye. Difficult beauty comes to us only through perhaps practiced looking or practiced perceiving, um, or we become aware of difficult beauty, the more we're educated about a certain type of thing, or the more willing we are to be patient when, or thinking critically when we're looking or hearing or, or perceiving that thing. So a particularly complex painting or a piece of music that has a, a much more sort of tension in it when it arrives to our ear or eye or senses, we might at first reject it, or we might at first feel alienated from it, um, or feel even a, an experience of disgust. But if we're willing to sit with it and think about it with much more complexity, or educate ourselves about it, its beauty can reveal itself. So difficult beauty is a good theory for a disabled person, right? <laughs> you know, to be like, yeah. um, you may not immediately recognize how beautiful and great I am. But if you just think about it for long enough, you'll see. <laughs> and so that was a theory I liked very much. And I liked it so much that I kind of um, undervalued or did not give as much credence to easy beauty. Anything that seemed sort of easily recognizable as beauty, I could have a sort of negative or skeptical re reaction to. Yep. So part of this book is about, and that included the experience of like, falling in love with my husband, which happened very easily and being a mother and, and enjoying what are more immediate. And in some ways blunt, what he, he calls, Bozenkett calls them like blunt moments of beauty that just sort of hit you. I didn't like that. I really sort of was um, cynical about it. And so part of the experience of this book is me really turning the idea of beauty in its widest concept, not just physical beauty, but all the ways that we would think about that word beauty, turning it over and over and over in my mind, the hope is that by the end of the book, I'm able to experience these moments of easy beauty with the same reverence and appreciation that I would give to difficult beauty. So just as a last thing that, you know, the book begins with me looking at this very complex, nuanced, um, and extremely sort of com complicated image of the rape of Persephone. Um, and it ends with me describing with the same, um, I think, attempt at nuance, just listening to the sound of my husband making coffee in the morning. And so it's like, what's, what's that sort of trajectory in terms of being able to appreciate things or think about moments of beauty in my life?
I like that. I like that. And I like the, the bookends and the dovetail. I like that a lot. Um, are you, you were talking about how you were in a certain place in the airport. Are you, or have you done yet Toronto? Are you going to do Toronto? Have you done? I'd love to. I haven't, I haven't yet. Um, it's, it's not on the schedule, but I think we're just, I mean, I, I'm excited to go anywhere and to do all the things. So I mean, I if up. it comes it on the schedule out in and, Canada, so <laughs> yeah, if it comes on the schedule and you need a moderator, I don't know, <laughs> cough, cough, I would be happy to let me know. We need to make this happen. And then I will return the favor when you come to New York on your yeah. And when I, whenever I write, whatever, whatever I'm ready. Yes. Yes. But I would genuinely, I would love to, if, if something comes up and you get here, I'd love to come and be a part and help you out. Well, I want to make it happen. I'm literally going to email my publicist as soon as we get off the zoom about it. It would be a dream. And I would, I'm very honored by the generosity of that offer. So thank oh, you. Be, and I will take awesome. you up on that. <laughs> I will 100% do it. My fees, no, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, this was such a fun chat. I could sit and talk with you for like two more hours with the book. It was so, and I'm not even done it yet. So don't be surprised if I come back to you and be like, can we do a part two? I have feelings about it. Um, but this was amazing. How can the people, first of all, where can the people get the book? How do they get it? People can get it anywhere that sells books. It's it's all over. It's in Canada. I did like a lot of Canadian television. It's like I learned a lot about like Canadian talk shows through this, which was cool. Um, and so, yeah, I, I got to come to Canada. I'm really excited about about that possibility. But yeah, anywhere that sells books, you can get it. Awesome. And and uh, are there oh, like... Oh, and you... I did, sorry, I did the audio book also. So if you oh, nice. for audio books, um, which I know a lot of people do, it's it's me i'm reading it so that's awesome it's in the, it's in i guess the audible and all the places where you can get an audiobook yep it is nice fantastic and if people want to follow chloe cooper jones how do they follow you how can they support you i'm on twitter and instagram although i try not to ever look at twitter and i do look at instagram so and i post yeah, all the events that I'm doing, our future event, I will post. <laughs> and so, yeah, I think I'm just, I think I'm just Chloe Cooper Jones on Instagram, just my full name. Awesome. I'll make sure that all of it's in the show notes. And that when, I, when if you want to just click down to the show notes, you can click on whatever link I put there and you'll, it'll take you right there. So I'll do that. Um, Chloe Cooper Jones, thank you so much for coming on. And thank you for writing such an important piece of work that speaks to everyone, everybody, whether you're disabled or not. Um, thank you for that. And thank you for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. This conversation was the best. And yeah, I'm down for part two, whenever you are. <laughs> Amazing. Me too. Cause you might get an email like later this weekend. That's like, I read it. I want to do more. <laughs> Good. All right. Well, thank you for being here and I'll talk to you very soon. Okay. Sounds good. Bye. Bye. All right, friends. That's another episode of Disability After Dark in the books. Thank you so much for making this episode comfy, cozy, and crippled. And I hope you enjoyed sitting down with your favorite disabled person on the internet and talking all things disability. Thank you so much for being here. If you want to follow my work, you can head over to my website, andrewgerza.com, or you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at andrewgerza1. 
If you want to be on the show, you can, of course, email us at disabilityafterdarkpod at gmail.com with your disability story. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to support Disability After Dark, you can go to patreon.com slash disabilityafterdark and pledge as little as $1 a month up to $5 a month or more, or even a yearly amount if that works for your budget. We at Disability After Dark, me, really appreciate it. Thank you so much for supporting this show and Cripple Co. and all the things we do, and tune in next week when we shine a light on another disability story, right here on Disability After Dark. Bye, friends! Copyright Notice Disability After Dark was created, recorded, and produced by Cripple & Co. Productions and Andrew Gerza. Any and all use of materials, graphics, audio recordings, etc. cannot be used or distributed without express permission. If you would like to use an episode of the podcast or license an episode of the podcast on your website, please consider emailing Andrew Gerza and Crippling Co. Productions at disabilityafterdarkpod at gmail.com. Copyright 2022.